0: I had a meeting this past Friday with one of my more elderly clients. I say more elderly. He is in his mid-80s, and we were going over his tax situation for the year. I'd sent him an email earlier in the week, and he's a very religious, very devout man. He responded to my email. I said, well, I can meet you Friday afternoon at 3, and he said, "Uh, well, I'll see you on Good Friday at 3 o'clock. And one of the first questions he asked me when we got together was, he knows that I preach, and he asked me, well, what are you going to preach on Sunday? And I responded and said, well, it's it's too early for me to know that. He laughed, and uh, basically the reason he laughed is he expected me to say, well, I'm going to preach on the resurrection, because that's what is typically spoken of on this particular day in most pulpits. And so we got into a discussion about Jesus' resurrection and he shared with me some of his thoughts based on reading from all of the different accounts of the last hours of Jesus' life and then, and then the time after he was, he was raised from the dead. And, and he made a statement that, that did prompt my thinking in terms of what I wanted to speak on today. And the statement was that, that we all know the facts. And he was referring to the resurrection. He said, we know the facts of the resurrection, but do we allow those facts to impact our lives? Now, I will tell you that this particular gentleman has a Ph.D. in divinity, and he has taught at a major religious university most of his life. Um, He's a member of of a denomination, and he was actually one of the founders of of a campus crusade for christ but we we always have good discussions about the bible even though we don't necessarily agree on on things pertaining to the scriptures but as as he made that statement that we all know the facts but what do we do with the facts it it made me think about the ministry of christ after the resurrection Typically when we speak of the ministry of Jesus, we're referring to that three-and-a-half-year period, three period of time that began when he was about 30 and that ended with, with his death. That was his ministry. That was the time that he served. But what about after he re- was raised from the dead? What do we know about points of emphasis insofar as his example and his teaching over that next 40-day period of time. I think there's significance to the fact that Jesus waited 40 days. 40 is a, it's a Bible number, isn't it? 40 years of wilderness wandering, 40 days of temptation, um, and then there were 40 days... That Jesus remained on the earth before he ascended back to the Father. What was it that Jesus left with his disciples during that 40-day period of time? I don't think it was anything new. But I think it was a a time for Jesus to maybe clarify some things for his disciples. to, To help them to understand now that the scriptures have been fulfilled that... This this is what is important. And I don't believe they had complete and full understanding of everything that he had taught them before his death at that point in time. And I think they probably spent the rest of their lives working and sorting through a lot of what he did teach them. And there was clarity with the passing of time insofar as what Jesus emphasized. But what mattered to Jesus during that 40-year period insofar as what he did and what he said should matter to us. It's not just the fact of his resurrection that is significant, even though that's a life-changing event. It's what was important to him that he wanted his disciples to see as being important almost 2,000 years ago that should be important to us today as as well, I want to begin with some of the appearances of Jesus to his disciples and, and particularly the, the women who had went to the tomb to, to anoint his body and to continue the process of, of burial that they were not able to take care of beforehand. But as they, as they came to that tomb, they found what they didn't expect. They should have expected an empty tomb but they didn't expect that because in their minds they just weren't ready to accept it. But in Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 8, we read that they left the tomb quickly. This is after they saw the angels, they saw an empty tomb. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Now how do you mix the two? How do you mix fear with great joy? Typically, when when I experience fear, I'm not experiencing joy at the same time. Well, they were experiencing joy because they had seen the angels, they had heard the message that he is not here, he has risen, but they they didn't know how to process that. And I think that's why they had, had fear. And behold, Jesus, verse 9 of Matthew 28, met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him, and then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. You have the joy, but we've got to do something with that fear. We've got to replace that fear. Do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren and, and leave for Galilee, and there, there they will seek me. He's, he's pointing to what yet is to be done. But in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid. I have done exactly what I said I was going to do. I have been raised from the dead through the power of God. The tomb the is now empty. In Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 16 and, and verse 8. They went out, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I don't want to press this too much, but you see what their fear did is it it, it took away their ability to, to speak of that which was most important to, to them. He's no longer dead. But we're so afraid, we, we don't know what to say about this. Our, our fear has, has taken something away that, that is important. What Jesus sought to accomplish, I believe, based upon the evidence and what we read about that post-resurrection experience, he wanted to put courage back into the hearts of his disciples. But he also wanted to put within the hearts of his disciples joy. Joy. I don't want you to spend the rest of your life in fear. I don't want you to spend your life experiencing sadness and sorrow and heartache and and mourning. There's a time for all of that, but I want you to have courage. I don't want you to have joy. That's, That's your destiny as a disciple. And he emphasized that even during his ministry. He taught them parables about prayer. And one in particular in Luke chapter 18, the Bible says that he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And within the context there, he's speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Difficult times lie ahead for his disciples. But when he was raised from the dead, that didn't take those difficult times away. The resurrection didn't change their situation, but it was to change their heart. And if they would go to him in prayer, they would find the courage that they needed to move forward with their lives as disciples. Similarly, in John chapter 15, when Jesus was teaching that he was the vine and they were the branches. He was the vine and they were the branches. They were to be connected with Jesus. And he said to them as he brought that teaching to an end in John 15, he said, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Well, think about if if the joy of Jesus is truly within me, if the joy of Christ is truly mine, then my joy is going to be made full. And the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection, should not only produce that courage, but also that joy. If you're lacking courage, if you're lacking joy, if life is coming at you hard and it's robbing you of all of that which which God wants you to have insofar as your life experience and just remember, He is risen. Jesus wanted His disciples to experience that courage and that joy 2,000 years ago, and He wants you to experience the same today. And as we read through the book of Acts, and we look at the history of the church and the events that, that unfolded beyond the time of Jesus' ascension back to the Father, we read about the New Testament church, and we see that they experienced that. They faced opposition, they faced persecution, They were told to no longer preach and teach in the name of Jesus. They were flogged. They were beaten. And Jesus told them that that was going to happen. But in Acts chapter 5, we we see that the religious leaders listened to one of their religious leaders. They took his advice. They called the, the apostles in. They flogged them. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. Well, how am I going to have courage? And how am I going to have joy When I know that my future is going to be filled with beatings and persecution. How can I have that? I have to take my mind back to that empty tomb. They went on their way, verse 41, from the presence of the council rejoicing. They had that joy, didn't they? Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Do you ever find yourself just kind of putting things on the back burner? You know, as a disciple, life is coming at you hard. You're experiencing some difficult times, and you just say to yourself, well, you know what? i got to deal with this right now. There's there's just no time for this business of building the kingdom. They could have said that, couldn't they? But Jesus, for 40 days, wanted to remind them, now is the time to have courage. Now is the time to have joy. And it is this courage and this joy that will keep you from ever putting me on the back burner. It'll give you the, the... mental, emotional, and spiritual vitality that you will need to continue this thing called building the kingdom. We see that the disciples in verse 52 of Acts chapter 13 were continually filled with joy. They were continually filled with joy. They had hard times too. Is your heart filled with courage and joy? Go back. Look in the tomb. See that it's empty. That he is risen. And that's what Christ wants you to experience. The second thing I see in that post-resurrection ministry of Jesus is that he wanted to instill within the hearts of his disciples peace. Peace. Would you describe their lives as peaceful at this point? For three and a half years, most of them... The apostles and those women had been with him. They had seen miracles. They had heard the preaching. They had seen the multitudes coming to Jesus. They saw the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The multitudes were accepting Christ. They had seen Lazarus come forward from the tomb. They had seen the the hungry fed, the lame made to walk, the blind caused to see, the deaf made to hear. Those possessed of of demons, freed from that possession. And now what do they have? They've got a dead king. Where's the kingdom? Where's Jesus? There was no peace. There was internal turmoil. None of them at that point. You read the different accounts of the the passion of Christ, and, and there was nobody who was shining as a Christian. They were all struggling. They didn't have that spirit of peace. Just like so often in our lives, we don't have that peace either. And yet Jesus wanted them at that time to know that this is a time of peace. In John chapter 20 and verse 19. So it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, this is the day that he was raised from the dead, they were in a room with the doors shut for fear of the Jews. The Jews who had put Jesus to death, Jesus came and he he stood in their midst and he said to them, and, and you just have to try to imagine, here we are, we're just we're in this room, we're talking about everything that happened, everything that we, we believe seems to have just come to a crashing end, and all of a sudden, Jesus just appears. I don't see him knocking on the door. I don't see the door being opened and, and, and him coming in. All of a sudden, they look up, and there he is. And what does he say? Peace. Peace be with you, or peace be with you. To you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Why? He wanted them to know, I, I'm risen. I, I'm no longer in the tomb. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They had that joy. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he said, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. As you go and as you preach the gospel, I want you to speak of the Prince of Peace. I want you to share the peace that is in your hearts with others in spite of persecution, in spite of difficult times, in spite of tiled, as trials. I want you to experience that peace that can only be had through me. And then in verse 26, once more, eight days after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And, and here's Thomas who had said earlier, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, there he is again. He just pops up. Peace be with you. They needed to hear that message of peace, didn't they? They needed to know that, that I, I, I'm, I'm risen I'm no longer in the tomb. And, and that is a fact that can change your life. It's not just a fact to be believed, but it is a fact that can be lived. The turmoil is behind us. Now we just have heaven and eternity before us. And what we need to be doing now is the, the business of, of building that kingdom so that we can have that peace. Peace. Now Jesus did say, going back into the time of his ministry, in chapter 14 of the book of John, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. It's not the the peace that you're going to find in the world. It's the peace that comes only through a relationship with me and with my Father. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, again, you are to replace the trouble... You are to replace the fear with peace. And there's nothing magical about the way that we are to go about doing that. What did Paul write to the church at Philippi? He gave them a very simple plan. He said in Philippians chapter 4, To be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus wanted them to have that peace. It was the vaccine that they needed. It was was the the wall that God would build around them that would allow them to to go forward in life and again, in spite of what they might face, experience peace. When you find that you don't have it, it's as simple is going into the throne room of God and praying. And now beyond the post-resurrection ministry, we know also that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He is making intercession for us. He takes our prayers and he brings them before God. And when we can't put into words what it is that's in our hearts, what does the Bible tell us about the Holy Spirit? He searches our minds. And he takes what's in there. And what we can't put into words, he does. And he brings it before God. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, when Paul was writing about singing, he said, let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What's ruling in your heart? You know, when I'm, when I'm experiencing worry and anxiety and frustration... Ronnie, what was the word? Flumbaxed? Flummoxed, Flummoxed, or when I'm flummoxed. Ronnie shared that word with us this morning. How many of you know what flummoxed means? Only the people in my class, ooh, Darwin knows. Flummoxed, look it up. It's a new word, I don't use it very often. In fact, I never have used it until this morning. But when you experience that in your heart, there's a problem, right? You're, You're not where you should be. You're not where the Lord wants you. You're where those disciples were after his death and before they realized he is risen. So you need to go back. You need to look in that empty tomb once more. And you need to realize that he is risen. And then you can have that peace. And then the final thing that Jesus emphasized during that 40 day period, and I think this is especially evident the message that he preached, it it was the same. When Jesus began his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist began his ministry with the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you read through the different accounts of Jesus' ministry before his death, he went about speaking of things concerning the kingdom. But then in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, after he was raised from the dead, during that 40-day period. To these, that is, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. It's the same message. But now it's more clear because... The king that you expected to reign was put to death. He has been raised from the dead. So we're moving toward clarity on that matter of this kingdom. But then in verse 6, they're still not there. When they come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?" He responded, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. What he was saying to them was this. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's, It's what he had said to them during the course of his ministry that the kingdom is within you. It's in your midst. The religious leaders in Luke chapter 17 were asking the same question about this earthly king and this earthly kingdom. And he said, God's kingdom is in your heart. When when you put God in your heart and he rules, when he reigns in your heart, Then you have the kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to go about everywhere speaking about that kingdom. But again, what do we see? A point of emphasis in the life of Jesus. Post-resurrection. Same as during his life. But he wants them to understand that that all we're doing here now at this point is enlarging the borders of that kingdom. In Matthew 16, when Peter had made the good confession and Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He then said that I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he gave Peter those keys on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon him and he preached the gospel sermon that that caused that kingdom to manifest itself with the salvation of 3,000 souls. And now this eternal kingdom is going to continue to grow and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Satan is going to do everything within his power to put an end to it. But when he does that, I want you to just keep preaching. I want you to keep teaching. I want you to keep growing this kingdom. I want you to keep doing the work that you've been doing. Go, Matthew 28, and make disciples of all the nations. He said that I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus wanted them to understand. He's going to ascend back to the Father, but what's going to matter when he ascends back to the Father is what mattered to him when he was with them. The kingdom. Your citizens, your members of that kingdom. The focus is to be upon the kingdom. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, when Paul was writing to that congregation and he was addressing to, the, with, uh, to them numerous matters about uh, religious scruples and, and, and things that tended to divide them, he said that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual kingdom. It needs a spiritual focus, and the world so often doesn't give it it that. Why? Why is that such an important point? Well, you just look at the language of the New Testament when it comes to this matter of the kingdom. Why is it important to understand that it's an eternal kingdom? Why is it important to understand that it's a spiritual kingdom? Why did Jesus emphasize that before his ascension? Look at Colossians 1 and verse 13. He, that is God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This kingdom is not about the Easter bunny. It's not about hunting for eggs. It's not about wearing pink one day of the year. What is this kingdom about? It's about being transferred and rescued from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And why do I want to be there? Because it is in that kingdom that I have redemption, forgiveness of my sins. That's where, that's where salvation takes place. John, many years later, the aged apostle the only one who at this point in time in all likelihood was still alive. At the end, probably in his 90s, exiled on the island of Patmos, he receives this revelation because persecution was about to break out against the church and in a way it had not yet been experienced and probably never has been. It's going to be Rome against the church. It's going, to be, it's going to be Jesus against Satan. It's going to be true religion experiencing persecution from false religion. And I love the language of Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, the latter part of the verse where he says, To him who loves us, and he released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be the glory and the dominion forever. He's reminding them of what Jesus reminded him during that 40-day period of time. He's reminded them of what he came to realize when he went into that tomb and he saw that tomb empty, that the kingdom is never going to end. They They tried to put an end to my king. And and he did die, but then he was raised from the dead. The fact is, he was raised. But the fact changes who I am. And now I'm in this kingdom. And as I see the persecution, as I see the fiery darts of Satan being thrown against God's people, as I see that red dragon rearing its ugly head against the church in the years to come, it's going to be overflowing persecution. But remember, the tomb is empty. And remember, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not overpower my kingdom. And it was almost with spiritual pride, I think, that John could say in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1 I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus. I'm in that kingdom. I'm in that kingdom. And it's never going to end. My life may end, but that kingdom will not. And in eternity, I know that someday time is going to end and Jesus is going to come back to this earth. And Jesus is going to defeat the last enemy, which is death. And he's going to deliver the kingdom up to the Father. And that kingdom will never come to an end. And all of that is possible because of that empty tomb, because of that resurrection. And Jesus emphasized to those that he loved. This is what's important. Never lose your courage. Never lose your joy. Never lose your peace. This kingdom's never going to end. And in this kingdom, you're going to find redemption, forgiveness of your sins, which is going to be the source of your courage, the source of your joy, and the source of your peace that comes only through the Prince of Peace. Let's go to God now in prayer.